Okay. Kind of waggle all around. All right, if I could get your attention, we'll get started here. We're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. And today we'll be in chapter 36 and 37. So if you have your, your Bible there, turn to Isaiah 36. And uh, thank goodness the, the prophet has now turned back to historical narrative. If you remember last week, it was Hebrew poetry, which just wore me out. But, uh, and, and we went through like, I don't know, 14 chapters or something last week of Hebrew poetry. Uh, but today we're back to the historical narrative, and uh, we'll see that uh, Judah was getting ready to be attacked by the evil king Sennacherib from Assyria, and uh, this guy Sennacherib was an incredibly boastful man, we'll see in the text, and he, he was uh, arrogant and boastful, and who's a better example of pride and boasting than your pal and mine? Ralph Cramden. <laughs> we could for Judah. Now that he goes and, and, and passes away and goes to be with his ancestors, his son, King Hezekiah, follows uh, in his footsteps as king, but he's a different guy. The, the text says in historical records in 2 Kings uh, 16, 17, and of course 2 Chronicles, that he was a man that uh, was good, did good things in the eyes of God. Uh, he led the people back to God. He got rid of the idols and all the altars of the idols, and he had them going in the right direction. Got off to a good start, doing right in the eyes of the Lord. But in 701 B.C., here comes the evil king Sennacherib of Assyria with his giant army, and they came through the Middle East, and historically, and in the text, the biblical text here, he destroyed, he took 46 different fortified cities in the Middle, Middle East there. And he get, comes all the way down, he took uh, the nearest city that was fortified, the Jewish city of Lachish, he took Lachish, and so now we're worried, right, if you're in Jerusalem. We're the only ones left. He's, he's taken everybody. We don't have one-tenth of the soldiers he has. Uh, our only opportunity, our only chance is to build the walls up and hope we can outweigh them. And uh, right now, if you go on a tour, say, to Jerusalem, uh, you can find the underground tunnels that Hezekiah built. Knowing that Assyria was coming, they built underground tunnels to water supplies and... Uh, they built the walls up. They've got remnants of the old Hezekiah's walls there in Jerusalem, all relating to today's story. And so he panicked, and uh, he sent messengers out there, and uh, he compromised by paying 36,000 ounces of gold and 360,000 ounces of silver the king Sennacherib, and thought he had a deal. Uh, 
<laughs> you know how that goes. The deal got changed when Sennacherib comes in and takes all these other cities and his army is moving towards Jerusalem. He now decides he wants it all. He wants the whole city and all the people. And so that's, that's the context now in chapter 36 and 37. So even though he gave him all that gold, the deal got changed. And you know, it wasn't enough. It's never enough, is it? Sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. It always happens. You go down that road, and before you know it, it's out of control, right? And you can't stop that locomotion of sin when it starts dominating, controlling your life. And so in uh, the key verse in today's lesson, and the key, kind of the theme of it, is Hezekiah turns back, he repents and turns to God in prayer. And so in Hezekiah 37, verse 21, after he prays to God, the prophet Isaiah comes to him in verse 21, chapter 37, 21. It says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed, to me, about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and his army. And then if you skip forward, he goes on to say, God is going to answer his prayer. He's going to save Jerusalem. Not only will Jerusalem be saved, not be conquered, but they won't even, he won't even let them fire an arrow into the city. It's going to be that decisive. So what you've got here is a cause and effect, you might say. Jerusalem was saved by prayer. He prayed, and so Jerusalem was saved. The undefeated mighty army of Assyria was destroyed, and its king sent home by prayer. That, that's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Uh, and so I was wondering, you know, what kind of prayer is this? And is there a model for prayer in the Bible? And are all the prayers different? And so... You know, going through all the old prayers in the Old Testament and the New, I found that in certain ways they're all the same. I did an informal poll actually asking a lot of people, what's the most well-known prayer in the Old Testament? And most of them came back and said, what's that prayer that says, uh, if my people are called by my name? I said, you mean Second Chronicles 7.14? Yeah, that's it. And so that was kind of the ones that everybody had heard and heard sermons on and remembered. I, and so the amazing thing, though, it's really a trick. That's not a prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14 is actually God's response to Solomon's prayer. It happened in Second Chronicles 7. Uh, Solomon had finished building the temple, you know, Solomon's temple there in Jerusalem. And he was praying to God about it and saying, Lord, in the future, if your people, if the Jews... If Israel ever apostatizes and falls away from you, but if they ever come back, please welcome them back. Please bless them. Please forgive them. And so 2 Chronicles 7.14 is God's answer to his prayer. And in it, God lays out the conditions of a righteous prayer that he will answer. 
And so I, I also in the New Testament, you've probably heard this quoted, James 5, 16. James said, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so people always, when they hear that, go, okay, who is a righteous man and what is an effective prayer? You know, let's break that down. What does he mean by that? Because I want to pray a prayer that will have an impact, that will cause God to bless us, right? And so Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 really lays it out there. Let me read it for you again. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So there's the conditions that God lays out for an effective prayer of a righteous man. And what I'd like to do before we get into the text, because I think the whole thing revolves around Hezekiah's prayer, is to break down exactly what God meant, the conditions of prayer. Let's, let's go through it item by item. If my people, so you start off with, they've got to be God's people. We're talking about you must have a relationship with God. In our case, we can only have that relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made it possible by coming and dying for our sin and uh, making that atonement for sin that we who were previously alienated are now in a relationship with God, with the living God. We have an intimate, loving relationship with God through Christ. And so my people, you must have a relationship with God. You must be part of his family. I mean, just think about it. Literally, I, was, I thought this um, last week. I was at the bank, a Chase Bank, and uh, I was standing in line, you know, to make a deposit or something, and there was a guy in front of me who went up there to cash a check on Wells Fargo. And the guy said, well, do you have a, do you have a uh, account here? He said, no. He said, well, you need to go to Wells Fargo to cash that. <laughs> the same thing here. If my people, God's saying, you're going to come to me asking for stuff, needing my help, you need to be my people. You need to have, we need to have that relationship, okay? A negative and positive example of that, uh, you could say, would be uh, the parable in Luke 18, right? Uh, second thing is, if my people who will humble themselves, so the second condition is humility. You come before God in humility. You don't come to God uh, demanding things or saying, we deserve this. I've actually heard people pray in Bible study stuff like, Lord, because we obey your word and because we're your people and because I give money, uh, to, I tithe money to the church, we pray that then you would, and I'm going, back up. <laughs> That's not where you want to go. If you're trying to impress God, pal, you're in big trouble. God knows you. And so it's not about what, who you are or what you've done. It's about who God is and what he's done. And Hezekiah's prayer is just like that. It's all about God, as all the effective prayers are. It's about God's attributes and who he is. That's the only reason he's going to respond to you. It's because he loves, because he's righteous, because it's, you're his people, you see. And so humility. Uh, 
people tend to go to God as if he's Santa Claus or something, right? And they think, okay, it's kind of like the entitlement, you know, when you have uh, kids, teenagers especially, and they go, you have to get me a car. I do? Why? Because you're my father. You had me. <laughs> I go, no, that doesn't, that doesn't do it. But, I mean, that's the, that's the way human beings think. And they think God is God, so he has to give me what, you know. He made me, he loves me, then he should give me this stuff. And that's the way people think. Uh, thirdly, he says, if, if my people will humble themselves and seek my face. So there's the third condition. Seek my face. So we want what God wants. We want to know God's will. We're seeking to know him, seeking to know his will, seeking to glorify him, you see. And so it's all about him and submitting to God's plan and God's will and God's program instead of my selfish program. So we'll seek my face, will come to me looking for me to know me and to submit completely to God's plan, God's word, God's word that you have here, of course, and God's purpose and God's will, and God's authority, all these things, we surrender to God in that way. And then fourthly, the condition of that effective prayer, he says, morally, we need to turn from our wicked ways. So turn from your wicked ways. All of us have some issues, some weaknesses, some things that we struggle about. We certainly don't want people to know but I think today we should uh, all get it out on the table. We'll start with you, Jeff. <laughs> and we'll work that way. <laughs> no, but you know in your heart, and of course God knows, what issues you need to work on. And especially if they're the kind of sin that puts a barrier between you and God, right? So stop following the desires of your flesh and start following the desires and leading of the Holy Spirit. Because sin blocks our communication channel with God. As long as we've got these issues between us and him, our communication is going to be blocked, right? Uh, so we need to keep a clear channel between us and God in a moral, ethical sense. Again, like I said before, Sin always causes more trouble. Sin always takes us further than we want to go, always keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. So we need to deal with that before we approach God with one of these crisis prayers, you might call it, right? A crisis prayer. And so uh, this, you know, when you think of David, David sinned with Bathsheba. He wrote a couple of great psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, about his period of time where he had that sin that he had not dealt with, right? You know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he murdered her husband, Uriah, and uh, they, she got pregnant, and you, you know the whole story. But David tried to cover it up, and he went for about a year with that there, trying to act like it didn't happen and he didn't know, you know, anything was wrong. 
like a lot of, you know, all great leaders have that in common. They got to cover it up, don't they? They can't, they can't admit anything. And so David wrote later when, when his sin was uncovered and laid out there, he wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, he said, when I slept, when I kept silent about my sin, I couldn't sleep. I wasted away, inner turmoil, day and night, and God's hand was heavy upon me until I finally confessed my sin and approached God in humility and knew that I was forgiven, and I turned from that sin. Uh, and so that's what he's talking about. As long as you cover that stuff up and act like it's not there and you don't deal with it, David was saying it's... It's going to be an issue. It's, you're going to struggle with it. It's going to be a barrier between you and God. All right? So turn from their wicked ways. In Israel's case, of course, in the national sense, it was idolatry. It was idolatry that they had to recover from. And so the effective prayer of a righteous man uh, really requires that total submission and humility to God, cleaning up your life and seeking God's will. I, I was wondering, uh, before I um, taught this lesson, I was wondering if there was historical and archaeological evidence of the story that we're going to look at today. And there absolutely is. I uh, you know, Googled everything and checked it out. There's a wealth of archaeology out there that they've uncovered that just validates everything that's in this story. They've, they've found stamps and seals uh, in the ruins of the kings of Judah. King Ahaz and Hezekiah were real historical figures. Again, they, you know, when they would stamp a letter or a seal you know, of, of their authority on all the documents, they found that. Uh, they also uh, found the ancient city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and they found the palace of King Sennacherib, the evil king in today's lesson. And they had made these stone prisms. There are these five-sided stones that they did inscriptions on the stone. And uh, they told about all his conquests and everything that he did, uh, and it lines up perfectly with uh, the biblical account. Uh, there's even, in particular, he talks about the invasion and the conquering of the city of Lachish, which is that fortified city about 25 miles west of Jerusalem that is mentioned in today's lesson. Also, they found all the uh, old ancient walls, the stone walls of the palace, had all, these, all this artwork and all this inscription of all the king's conquest and, and uh, all the stories uh, there. Um, I saw those all, by the way, in the British Museum. So not only can you Google it, you can go to London and go to the British Museum and look at all this stuff from ancient Assyria. Also, if you, the archaeologists uh, uncovered Babylon and found a whole bunch of the... Um, stuff from Babylon as well, and that's in the British Museum. So uh, all kinds of information archaeologically, and it's all backed up, backing up everything that's in the lesson. Uh, 
Uh, Josephus, that great ancient uh, Jewish historian, uh, mentioned King Sinatra's defeat and the destruction of his army, and he said, by a plague, the 180-some-odd thousand Assyrians were wiped out, and he had to go back to Nineveh. And he also quoted an Egyptian historian from the time of Hezekiah. So, and we have the death of Sinatra confirmed as well on those uh, stone prisms with all the engravings on them. And it says that his son struck him down with the sword. So his own sons killed him, just like you'll see in today's story, if I ever get there. <laughs> all right, chapter 36. Uh, all the other towns and cities in the whole Middle East have been taken, as I said, uh, in his own records. Sinatra says he took 46 walled cities and then came and was getting ready to lay siege to Jerusalem. So before they got there, uh, it came about in chapter 36, when it came about in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that would be 701 B.C., Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them all. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish, so they, were, they had Lachish and they'd taken it and then the army was there, and so he sends his general, Rabshakeh, to Jerusalem with a message. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field right outside the wall of Jerusalem, and Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household there, and Shebna, the scribe, and these, all these guys, they went down there to hear what he had to say, to receive uh, this messenger. And Rabshakeh said, so now in verse 4 and following, you're going <laughs> to have the, this incredible boasting and bragging about all that the king of Assyria has done and all the cities they've taken. And the whole thing is meant to intimidate and, and scare the heck out of the people in Jerusalem in order to induce them to surrender everything and give themselves up, open the city up to the army of Assyria and give up their freedom. And he's going to give them five points here, beginning uh, in verse 5. So verse 4, he says, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? Why would you dare to defy Assyria? Are you crazy? Here's five points. Number, number one in verse five. There's no wisdom in this. Who's counseling you to, to stand up against Assyria? They're idiots. It's counsel without substance. He says, now on whom do you rely? Whose wisdom that you have rebelled against me? Why would you do something this stupid? Secondly, verse six, you don't have any allies. You think you can depend on Egypt or one of these other cities? I've whipped them all. They're all destroyed. You've got nobody to help you. You're alone. Behold, you rely on the staff of the crushed reed, even on Egypt. They're already crushed. On which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and it will break his hand. So if Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who rely on him. And then verse 7, uh, the third thing, religion is not going to save you. You think guys think you're going to turn to your God and be real religious? That's going to help you? It didn't save any of the other cities. So he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? 
and it said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Didn't your own king go and wipe out all the altars of all the gods that you could turn to? And then fourthly, uh, verse 8, he says, I tell you what, this is how confident I am. I'll spot you 2,000 horses. I know you don't have any cavalry, and I got this great cavalry. I'll just spot you 2,000 horses. Oh, yeah, even if I gave you 2,000 horses, you wouldn't have the men to ride them. You got nothing. So I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. And then he kind of laughs. <laughs> How then do you think you can repulse one official, the least of my master's servant, and, and rely on Egypt or anybody else. And then fifthly, verse 10, he says, and by the way, God is on our side. Evidence being, we've won every battle. So far, we've fought 46 battles just in the Middle East. We're 46 and 0. God's on our side. And so, very intimidating. It is, it's, all this is true, too. So it's very intimidating, and it's scary. And there's really, it seems like, and truthfully, there's no reason to think they got any chance at all. And that's the point. And you know, life's problems are cleverly disguised that way, aren't they? Have you ever had a problem that seems like it's got no... <laughs> Answer to it, there's no way. There's no way out. You ever had one of those? You're supposed to be going like this because I know you have. I know you. <laughs> yeah, life's crisis problems are cleverly disguised as monsters, as giants, as undefeatable armies. They're unsolvable. Life's problems are unsolvable. It's scary, isn't it? What are we going to do? I don't know. That's the situation they find themselves in. So this is a crisis. And this prayer that Hezekiah is going to pray will be a crisis prayer. So he's going to have to really live up to all those points we just went over that God had laid out for King Solomon. So he goes on the, uh, the rest of chapter 36 uh, talking, you know, the same trash. You know, he's just really trash talking them. And at the end of which, these guys are so upset that verse 22, 36, 22, they came to Hezekiah and tear their clothes. Oh, we're, we're totally in trouble. We got no chance. It's hopeless. They came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him all that this guy had said. This is, this is a scary dude. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. So chapter 37. It's great, great uh, contrast between the boastful arrogance of the messenger of Sennacherib, and Sennacherib's, of course, boastful arrogance. 
and the humility that you're now going to see in the city of Jerusalem. When King Hezekiah heard all this, he also tore his clothes. That's a sign, a Jewish sign of grief and remorse and humility. And he covered himself with sackcloth. That's like taking all your nice clothes off and putting on a burlap bag. Rough, uncomfortable. Why would you do that? Because he wanted to show everybody, and especially God, I'm nothing. I'm undeserving. I can do nothing. I have nothing. Lord, you must help us. There's no other way. So they tear their clothes, put on sackcloth, weep and wail and cry and pray to the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, his messenger, uh, to Isaiah the prophet in verse 2. Go see the holy man, Isaiah, that guy that's been preaching and, and teaching in the streets in the temple. Ask him, what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? And they said to him, thus says, they said to Isaiah, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, crisis, rebuke, rejection, for children have come to birth and there's no strength to deliver. There's no reason because we're all doomed. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, that evil man out there making these boasts. God will maybe hear it and respond, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God. Maybe he will, maybe the Lord God will rebuke them. Therefore, Isaiah's, here's his, here's his message back. Go tell Hezekiah and the boys, pray. They're hoping he can come up with something like, there's a big army just on the other side of the river. And if we take the leftover gold and go, surely you got a better plan than just prayer. No, that's it. That's it. When you've got an unsolvable problem, that's, that's what you've got. That's the weapon you have. That's it. That's why it's unsolvable for human race. But only God can solve those kind of problems. So offer a prayer to God for those of us who are still alive. So the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. So he also gives him this word. Go back and tell Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah hadn't even prayed yet. But go back and tell Hezekiah one more thing. Pray, but know this, even before you pray, know this, that they're not taking Jerusalem. They're not taking Jerusalem. And they will not even shoot an arrow into this city. Now I want you to hear that because I want you to know that that was God's predetermined plan before Hezekiah prayed. Have the wheels, are the wheels spinning up there? Earlier we saw that God said, because you have prayed, 
I will save Jerusalem. What we see here, before he even prays, he's already determined that they're not taking Jerusalem. So what's going on here? This kind of unlocks one of the mysteries of prayer. God has determined to use our prayer, your and my prayer, Hezekiah's prayer, to carry out his predetermined will. He has chosen to act in concert with our prayer. He has chosen to involve us with his predetermined plan for the human race. Before you even pray, God knows what he's going to do, but it's very important for you to pray because if you don't, he's not going to act. If you're not confused, then there's something wrong with you. Isn't that awesome, though? God wants you to pray. He wants to use you in what he's getting ready to do. He wants the inhabitants of Jerusalem to come to him in humility and give it all up. We were holding on for dear life in the power of our own strength. But Lord, we have now let it go. We are in your hands, Lord. Please save us. Please help us. We want your will. We want to serve you. And Lord, please save Jerusalem in order to glorify God's name. Right? Before this, we normally think, what, what do you do every day? You go out there and try to glorify your name. You try to make money for yourself and promote yourself. But when you come to God in one of these crisis prayers, it's about the glory of God. It's about his will. Seek my face, my will, what I want. So, verse 8, here comes another threat. After Isaiah told them they're not taking Jerusalem. Here comes Shepherd. He had gone back and to Lachish and told Hezekiah, they said no. So he says, okay, I'm going to write a letter this time. I want you to deliver this letter. And so he writes a letter this time, and it goes back. Verse 10, same stuff. The letter says, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. But your religion's not going to save you. The gods of all these other cities didn't help them. It's not going to save you, says the letter. I'm going to destroy you completely. I'm going to torture you. I'm going to burn the place down. You need to give up. I promise I'll be kind to you. If you just come out. Yeah, right. And he says, where are all these other kings that stood against me? They're all dead. So verse 14, again, great contrast. King Sinatra of Assyria is writing these arrogant letters. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord. He takes the letter and goes to the temple, lays it out on the floor, a symbolic act of laying it out to the Lord. Lord, look at this. Look what this arrogant, boastful man has said about you, Lord. 
And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Listen to the prayer. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim. So who's this prayer about? God, the greatness of God, the attributes of God. It's all about him. Thou hast made the heaven and the earth. You're the creator of all things. You are God and you are God alone. Hear my prayer, Lord. Incline thine ear. Open your eyes. See what's happening. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. He's praying for God to do something about evil, for God to defend himself against this evil man. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and all their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire. They were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, but they have destroyed them. So he's come in and taken all these cities, taken the idols of those cities and destroyed them. But verse 20, Now, O Lord our God, you, being the one and only God, deliver us from the hand, his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, Lord, art God. Why should God do this? Because Hezekiah deserves it. No. To glorify God, he should do it. Here's God's answer pretty quick, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sinatra, because you have humbled yourself and you seek my face and you've turned from your wicked ways, I'm going to answer your prayer and save Jerusalem. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against the Assyrians. They've despised and mocked you. Uh, verse 23, reproached and blasphemed against the Holy One of Israel. I'm moving quickly now. Verse 26, he says, I planned this a long time ago, by the way. I mean, this has always been God's will, God's plan. Amazing. From ancient times I've planned it, now I've brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. He brought Assyria into here to conquer all those other cities. All their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed. They were put to shame. They were crushed. But he knows Assyria. Verse 28, I know all about you. I'm the one that raised you up. I brought you here. Verse 29, but because of the, you're raging against me. Assyria is raging against God. And because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose. Which is an interesting expression. Why? Because Assyria had a practice of doing that. In a lot of those reliefs that they, archaeologists have found, they brought the prisoners out of these cities with hooks in their nose. The prisoners on these wall reliefs would be naked and bloody, and they would have these big fish hooks in their nose, and they'd be pulling them. Rough. These are not nice people. I know you were rooting for the Assyrians. 
But God says, I'm, I'm coming and I'm going to take you out. And the sign, uh, just real quick, verse 30 through 32, he says to Israel, he says, okay, to Jerusalem, things are tough. They've wiped out all your farms and taken all your stuff in the outer districts. Next year is going to be another bad year, but basically in three years, the land will be productive again. I'm going to restore you to productivity, Jerusalem, Judah. Therefore, verse 33 Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. Neither shall he come before it with a shield nor throw up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. He's going to send him back and they will not take Jerusalem. I will defend this city to save it. Why? Because they deserve it? No. For my own sake and my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And as Josephus said, it was with the plague. And men arose early in the morning, and behold, all these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home to Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of his god Nisroch that his sons killed him with the sword. And so is the death of all tyrants, right? And also, uh, this has been confirmed by those reliefs that are in the British Museum that this guy, Sinatra, got killed by his own sons. So, there it is. God has laid out for us to know that the effective prayer of a righteous man does indeed avail much, accomplish much, okay? Um, so, question Human boasting of the Syrian kings that we, that we talked about here and that's on all these reliefs as well. Why do people love that stuff even today? I mean, these people, you know, why is Joe Namath famous? He really wasn't that good. A, he was pretty good, but I mean, he wasn't that great as, as great quarterbacks go. Why is he so famous? Because he said, he predicted they were big underdogs. He said, we're going to beat them. It blew the press's mind, and they were just fascinated by it. It was the biggest story ever, and everybody, and then they went out and won. So he became famous, much more than he was before. Jimmy Johnson, when he was here with the Dallas Cowboys, you remember? Playing the San Francisco 49ers in the championship game, and they were, they were favored, and Jimmy Johnson said, put it in, what do you say, three-inch headlines. We're going to beat them. I guarantee it. Everyone, whoa, what arrogance. But that's all they could talk about. The press went nuts. They love that stuff. I think in their heart they just love boastful arrogance and, you know, they just, it's such self-promotion. I think we all wish we could do that and then follow through with it, Right? Why do people like the pro wrestlers? 
they get in there, they wrestle for about three minutes, and they brag for about 20 minutes. What's the appeal of that? The same thing. People love that stuff. And in their hearts, they wish that was them, that they could do that and be great like that, right? That blatant self-promotion. But the spiritual reality is that really our value and our greatness is only realized in that relationship with the living God. And that's what God was telling Solomon and Hezekiah. Because you have humbled yourself before me and come to me in prayer, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to answer your prayer. And for no other reason. And that's who we are. And when we have a crisis situation, we don't stand up like Joe Namath and say, this is no problem, I'm going to do this, or Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. You're not the greatest. Except in that relationship with Christ. Isn't that great? In your relationship with Christ, you and him together are the greatest. That's the way God has set it up. In Christ, you can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the only way you can say that. Yeah, Philippians 4. If you said to me, I can do all things, I said, well, you're out of your mind. <laughs> but if you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I go, that's right. Isn't that awesome? And so Hezekiah, just a guy like us, humbled himself and saved Jerusalem and solved an unsolvable problem. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories, and thank you, Lord, for laying out this wonderful prayer of this righteous man, no righteousness in and of himself, but he was righteous in your eyes because he humbled himself before you and sought your will and the glory of God and may we do so also in Jesus' name. Amen.